will send to them. A diluting influence so that they might believe what is false. Literally, God's going to send a diluting influence upon them that they might believe the lie. Beloved, I know of no more terrible reality than when God says, enough is enough. I know nothing more sadder than when God says, enough, it's too late. But that is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote in the verse that I just read. As I was studying for our Christmas series in 2 Thessalonians, while the idea of Christmas was beyond those verses, I kept going back to that verse over and over again. That God would send to them such a delusion that they would believe a lie. And I felt like that if God stirred my heart that much with that verse, that I needed to share what he shares with me to you. Don was supposed to preach this morning. We're going to be taking more turns, and today was his day. But early in the week, I told Don, I said, Don, I need to bump you. I need to share what God is burdening my heart with for our people. And of course, he graciously said, you, well, he said, you're the boss, do what you want to do. And I said, I am, aren't I? You know? But I have something that I believe is from God today to us, dear people. And I want to ask that in a moment after we read, when I begin to pray, I would ask that you pray for me, that I can share only what God once shared today, and that God will take his word into the heart that's been prepared to receive his message. Would you stand with me? Second Thessalonians will be our text. I want us to read chapter 2, beginning verse 1. At the end, we'll go back to chapter 1. But I want us to begin in chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know that what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That means there's a lawless, an air, an atmosphere of lawlessness, dear people, that's reigning now. It's already at work. Only he who now restrains, I believe that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And there's this verse. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged. God sends a deluding influence so that they may be judged who do not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I find myself this morning overwhelmed with what you've called upon me to do. I know and we got, God, we know, don't we, that I'm inadequate for this. But at the same time, dear Father, I believe it's what I'm supposed to do. And I pray for the Holy Spirit unction to be able to communicate so that our dear people, maybe in a fresh way, will realize the seriousness of what truth really is and the results of error really are. God, may we take these scriptures. May your spirit burn them into our heart. But God, in the course of that, while much of this may be challenging and while some may be negative, Father, the overriding truth is that believers are going to win. In fact, we already have because of the cross. May we learn today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Keep your Bible open if you would. I mentioned to you, if you were with us through the Christmas series, I mentioned to you a couple of things about these dear Christians that were suffering in Thessaloniki. I told you, first of all, that they were undergoing severe testing, uh, severe, very severe persecution. In fact, the persecution was so bad, they were wondering two things. They were wondering, is it worth it? You ever been like that? Is it really worth it? And they were wondering because it seemed to be so bad that Jesus had already come and they had missed it. Somehow, uh, a preacher, a letter, 
somehow a teaching began to disseminate through the ranks that, that Jesus had come, and everybody knows that when Jesus comes and snatches away his people, it's going to be tough for those who remain. Somehow in their mind, they thought it had happened, and was it worth it? So G, uh, Paul writes to them, and he says, yes, it's worth it. And no, Jesus hasn't come. In fact, in the letter he writes, there's some things yet to be. Now, primarily because this is a letter to Christians, although he's going to talk an awful lot about non-believers, he's wanting the believers to stay the course, not to be shaken or disturbed. He's wanting the believers to comfort and, and strengthen each other's hearts. And he wants them to know that there is a day coming when all the wrongs will be made right. Do you understand that, Christian? All of our brothers and sisters who are living overseas, that are undergoing the worst persecution in the history of Christendom, far greater to worse today, than 10, 20, 30, 100, 200, 2,000 years ago. Jesus is saying, there's coming a day, dear Christian, when all the wrongs will be made right. When the believers will get their due, the God-lovers will get their due. And the God-haters will get theirs as well. And yet as I kept reading this book, as I kept pouring over this letter, that phrase, deluding influence, kept stirring my heart. And I just feel like we need to address it today. And I want to I handle the text. I, I want to handle the text through a, through a series of questions to you. And I hope the Holy Spirit will give me ability to answer the questions. The first question is, who's going to send this deluding influence. And verse 11 tells, obviously, verse 11 tells us that it is God that's going to send it. But don't move too quickly over it. Isn't it striking that it is God? Yeah. Tom, do you mean to tell me that God is in control of evil? That God sets the limits of evil? That God even sets the boundaries of man's evil intentions. And my answer to you, yes, he does. And when God says enough, guess what, dear people? It's enough. You see, our culture has lost the fear of God today, but Scripture clearly teaches us that God is sovereign over everything, and God is sovereign over everyone. Do you understand that today? Do you understand the ramifications of that today? Do you understand, dear people, what that means for you and your life? What it means for the American culture? What it means for the cultures of all the people of God all over the world. The world turns 
on his voice. The sun shines and the rain falls according to his word. Nations come and go on his command. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Can I state emphatically to you today that God rules everything? I believe it was Adrian Rogers who, who said, America's greatest hope is God. And then he said, America's greatest fear is God. Dear friend, when God says enough, whether that be for a historical period, which is a strong reference here, whether it be for a nation's existence, or whether it be for your life, when God says enough, it'll be enough. And it'll be too late to change anything that you would like to change or anything you're thinking about changing or anything you would like to see changed. Who's going to send it? God is. Now, what is he going to send? Question number two. Well, it says here in this verse, a deluding influence. Let me break that down. It's an interesting couple words. The word influence is the word for work. It carries the idea of energy, not mystical, but an energetic work, an intentional work. The word deluding is a very important word. It's a word for error. Or the word for lie. It comes from a root word which means to wander. We, we get the English planet from it. The idea is a wandering planet or perhaps a, a wandering star. We are told today in our culture that our culture has no absolute truths. That truth is relative to the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Our truth is, is relative to the situation you find yourself in. It, it's kind of like this idea. You're in a circumstance over here and you're wrestling with what to do, what is right and wrong, and, and what may be right or wrong pertains to this particular situation, but over here it may be something totally different and you're wrestling between what is right and wrong and what is right or wrong is different over here. What it may be right there, it may be wrong here, and that's called situational ethics. That's called a, 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 a relevance of the moment, and it is wrong. The idea here, I think, is this. That God, since we've thrown away absolute truth, since we've thrown away standards that are to govern the minds and the hearts of people, that God will send a working of error. And people will accept it. The idea for me is that a liar is going to stand up and tell a lie into people will believe the lie as truth. Do you have a sense that that is happening in our culture today, do you? Do you have a sense that there are things being spoken 
And we who claim the name of Jesus, we who have the Holy Spirit of God living within this, that we're to have discernment by the Spirit. We say, that's not right. That can't be right. And yet it's being spoken. And the next day, we hear all these people say, it is right. That's what he's talking about. You see, there was a time when even the people that were not the people of God had some kind of a conscience that understood right and wrong, understood what the church was supposed to stand for, understood that the Word of God was to be the, the, the direction and the guide of a nation. But now at some point, when God sends the deluding influence, someone will stand and people will stand, ultimately, depending on your end time ideas, there'll be someone who will stand and tell a lie and the people will say, it's the truth. But gang, listen to me. A lie is a lie no matter who the teller of the lie will be. Paul is saying in the latter days, there will be people of lawlessness. There will be a person of lawlessness, a son of destruction, who will stand and tell a lie. It'll be perceived as truth, and people will fall for it. Question number three, important question here. To whom is the lie sent? Verse 11, who is them, in verse 11, that Paul is talking about? Well, it's clear in reading the verses that this deluding influence is going to be sent by God. Not to the believers, but to the lost and unbelieving. So that they might believe the lie, so that they may be judged. That's what Paul says here. That's striking, isn't it? But it's what the Word of God says in these sliding values of culture. Now, beloved, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Okay. The good news is that Paul is not talking about the saved. He's not talking about the believers in Christ. In fact, his words to believers are to strengthen, encourage, stay the course, and we'll read some a little bit later. The bad news, and this depends a little bit on your end-time position, but the bad news is that the godly, will undergo persecution. Now, beloved, when the departure comes, we don't know. We sure want to miss the bad stuff, don't we, huh? But listen, and, and I don't know when it comes. I don't know how all that shakes out. But listen to me. The godly have always endured bad stuff. The church has always suffered. The church to whom Paul is writing was suffering terribly. So even if we want to believe the pre-trib rapture of the church, what makes us think that the church is going to miss suffering and persecution? We want to believe in the pre-trib. We want to get out of this place, right? Huh? Amen? Yeah, we want the, the, the moment to come when we're all taken up. But do you know that's a relatively a current position of the church? Do you know that? 
the church has always historically held that the church of Jesus Christ will go through the tribulation, be raptured, and then the return takes place. And even if you're pre-trib, I don't know whether you are or not. I grew up pre-trib. Now I'm beginning to think that I'm post-trib. Actually, I'm a pantheorist. It's all going to pan out, and I'm going to be with him, and I'm ready for it. But regardless of your end-time position, beloved, listen to me. The church has always suffered. The people of God has always been persecuted. This church here in Thessalonica was undergoing some severe persecution. Our brothers and sisters are undergoing persecution over the world, worse than at any time in the history of the Christian movement. Read that book, Insanity of God, I mentioned last week. What makes us think for one moment, regardless of your perspective position, what makes us think for one moment? That the church is not going to suffer and be persecuted. What makes us think, dear people, that the church in the United States of America, who really doesn't know a whole lot about persecution, what makes us think that we're not going to be challenged in our beliefs as well? You see, the church has always suffered. But the church has always endured the bad stuff as well, you see. He's writing to people who are suffering terribly. And he's saying, gang, listen, <laughs> it's going to get worse. But endure. Be strong. While more may be on the way, the best is yet to be. Now I think another question we need to answer from the text, if I can. And this is probably some of the challenge, biggest challenge for me is why in the world would God send a deluding influence? Let me see if I can answer it. I want us to read again. Look at verse 10, 11, and 12. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason, see that ties it right back to verse 10, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Because of that, God will send upon them, the lost, those who wouldn't receive the love of the truth, a deluding influence for this purpose. That what they believe is going to be false for this purpose, that they may be judged because they took pleasure in wickedness. Why would God send a deluding influence Upon the lost. Because they rejected truth. To grab a lie. Because they took pleasure in wickedness. Now listen to me. Don't, lose, don't fog out. The lost like their sin. The lost like it so much. They reject truth. And they believe lies. And such were some of us. We were the same way. We loved our wickedness. We don't want to be saved until God in His grace injected, interfered. Last week I said, God's an interfering God. Did I not say that? That God interferes into the affairs of the sheep to draw them and convict them and call them. That's what verse 13 and following teaches us. 
to salvation. The lost don't want to be saved. They love the sin that damns them to hell. Amazing, isn't it? After repeated calls, threats, promises, they reject the one and only wise God. And at some point, God hardens them in order that those who won't repent can't repent. That's what he's saying. An illustration of that is Romans chapter 1. Three times in Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God turned them over. In Romans 1, he talks about heterosexual sin, and he talks about homosexual sin. We want to feast on the homosexual sinners today. But heterosexual sin is a sin just like homosexual sin. It's all sin. It's all condemnation, you see. And the Bible tells us that because they rejected truth, three times God turned them over. It says in those verses that even though they knew God, they knew God, they did not honor God. They exchanged His glory for idolatry. They exchanged His truth. Or a lie. Sinners like their sin. They don't want to receive the truth. They enjoy their wickedness until the doors of hell open up and suck them in. John MacArthur is one of my favorite preachers today, one of my favorite commentators today. Here's what he wrote. He, he said, the unregenerate are eternally lost. Not because they did not hear or understand the truth, but because they did not love the truth. That's what verse 10 says. Now, guys, listen to me. Those that go to hell don't go to hell because God sends them to hell. Those of us that that are a little more on the sovereign grace end of the spectrum, we, we sometimes get challenged. Oh, you, you strong Calvinist folks just think that, that God sends people to hell. I don't believe God sends them to hell. They go to hell on their own. Verse 10 says they go to hell because they did not receive the love of the truth. That's what MacArthur said. I agree with that. That's what verse 10 says. You see, dear people, when those that are lost end up in hell, they're not going to point a finger at God and say, I'm in hell because of you, God. They're going to point a finger at themselves, and they're going to say, I'm in hell because I rejected the love of the truth. I took pleasure in my wickedness. You see, dear people, the hallmark of false doctrine is and has always been the person in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call that soteriology. We call that the doctrine of salvation. I want you to listen to me carefully. We can discuss and we can argue a lot of different things. We can discuss and we can argue eschatology, which is the doctrine of the last days. You may say, I'm a pre-trib, I'm a mid-trib, I'm a post-trib. All I know is it's all going to work in the end. And we can argue, we can discuss it, but we can still go out and get a burger after we're through. We can still 
be unified as believers in Christ. Ecclesiology even, we can argue. We can talk. That's why there's 50 million different churches. We all have different ideas about church. This church, your church should do this. Church should do that. A church should sing this. A church should sing that. Church shouldn't shout. A church should shout. Church shouldn't raise their hand. Church should raise their feet. We go all over the scale, you see. But at the end of it, we're still brothers in Christ. We can still function. But the line of demarcation, where we can't be wrong, where Indian Springs cannot be wrong, is in soteriology, in the doctrine of salvation, in the efficacy and the self-sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone in salvation. With having man having no part of it, not one iota of cooperation with it. I believe that's the defining issue of our day. It's been the defining issue in the church all through history. But in this culture in which we live, and the speed of ungodliness that we find today, it's the defining issue uh, it's the defining issue of your life it's the defining issue of your marriage it's the defining issue of your children we cannot be wrong on this soteriological truth the reformation that that broke away from the dark ages from roman catholicism and God ushered in through Martin Luther and, and different men this great reformation truth upon which we stand today in which we bask in the glory of God's grace today. Define salvation this way. Salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Beloved, that's salvation. Grace alone. Man doesn't cooperate. Man doesn't do his best. Man's enjoying his sin, embracing his wickedness. That's what judgment is going to be like. That's what judgment is for those who reject the love of truth. Grace is the movement of God upon the heart that convicts that heart of sin and righteousness and judgment to come just like we've been teaching in Sunday school in John. Faith alone in Christ alone. We believe that man is saved by the work of Christ upon the cross when he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin alone. Christ alone. Not baptism. Not church membership. Not some mystical idea or thought in our head. It's Jesus. And Jesus alone. And we cannot... Very one iota from that, or we're telling a lie that'll be embraced by those who are damned, according to the verses we read. According to Scripture alone, we believe the Word of God, the inerrant, infallible Word. I have nothing else to tell you except from what I study and teach people. You don't have to worry about me singing, I've tried that. You don't have to worry about my jokes. No one laughs. They just laugh at dawns. It's the Word of God that has to be the very foundation upon which we base our life. And it's to the glory of God. Who's the boasting? It's boasting in God. 
Who gets the glory? The cross. And anytime we try to rob it, God will get us. I'm telling you, we can be wrong in a lot of areas. We can debate with a lot of different churches. But Indian Springs cannot, you cannot be wrong on our soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We stand or we die on this soteriological truth. And if a person rejects this truth, according, and I understand the time frames here, at some point God sends a diluting influence. So that person will embrace a lie, take pleasure in their wickedness, until hell's doors open and they go through into a Christless eternity, eternal torment, because they failed to love the truth so as to be saved. Now I realize this may sound somewhat negative. It's not meant to be. If you're lost, I guess it is. But if you're saved, this Paul's not even talking about you. What then for us? Well, let's take our Bible. I, I want to read some verses in chapter 1. Begin reading verse 3 through 10, and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap all this up, okay? First Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians. Did I, tell, did I say 1 Thessalonians earlier? Did I say 2 Thessalonians? Good, I didn't screw up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward another grows ever greater. Therefore, verse 4, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. What he's saying is that this church had incredible persecution, yet they endured, persevered by faith. Verse 5 is challenging. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment because you, then you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which indeed you are suffering. You see, the perseverance of the saints holds up no matter whether you're in a fairy land or whether you're in a terrible land, you see. For after all, it is only just for God. Now here's good news. To repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution. By the way, that word retribution means vengeance. God's not a revengeful God. God's a God of vengeance. A God of just and righteousness. Revenge is what we do when we get emotionally hurt. God is a God of vengeance when His holiness is attacked. That's what judgment is. It's a just, righteous judgment. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. There's a vein going through our churches today that don't believe in a personal devil and they don't believe in a personal hell. I want to tell you, the Apostle Paul believed it. And the Word of God believes it. The presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. One last question. What shall we do? If God is going to send at some point a diluting influence to unbelievers because they did not receive the love of the truth so that they may be judged because they enjoyed their wickedness, what then for Indian Springs made up of believers in Jesus who try to walk with Christ? What then for us? Well, let me give you some things to chew on. Until that time, let us be counted worthy of the calling. The Bible tells us to be counted worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Let us expect corruption in the culture and challenges to our faith. Let us be people of courage and confidence in the Lord Christ, who according to these verses is coming to rescue the godly in God's appointed time. He will come, the Bible says, with his mighty angels, dealing out retribution to sinners. He will come, and if you'll notice in verse 10, he will come to be glorified not by his saints. Did you catch the pronoun? He will come to be glorified in his saints. Oh, beloved, there's coming a day when God's going to be glorified in you. Because of who you are, because of what he's done in you, he'll get the glory and be marveled at by us. That word marvel means to wonder. It means to be full of amazement. Oh, dear Christian, I understand we in America don't suffer like our brothers and sisters in Africa and India, other places of the world. But there will be some. And you may undergo some now a little bit. Can't compare to Thessaloniki. Can't compare to India and those Egypt, those places. But dear Christian, I want you to know that there's coming a day when he's going to be glorified in you. On that day, man, what a day, huh? And you're going to be amazed at him. My friend Gary Kettle's mother went home to be with the Lord a couple days ago. And I told Gary, I said, man, she knows what he looks like. There's coming a day. We're going to stand in wonder and awe of this Jesus who gave himself that we might have eternal life. That's why I think the Bible can't describe it. All that basically Paul, all Paul can basically say is the eye can't see and the ear can't hear and, and neither has entered into the heart of any man the things that God's prepared for those who love him because it's beyond our imagination, you know. It's beyond human ability to see what it's going to be like when he is glorified in us and we're amazed at him. But I can tell you this, at that moment, at that moment, Paul says to them, at that moment, everything you're going through will be okay. Oh, Christian in Egypt, in Iraq, in Iran, on that day, 
It's going to be okay. Comfort one another. Strengthen one another. And the people of God at Indian Springs strengthen and comfort and encourage one another. Don't be amazed at the speed of wickedness. Don't even be amazed when someone stands up and tells a lie and everything in you screams, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. And yet everybody believes it's a truth. Don't be amazed. It's all part of the plan of the leading rescue of the people of God that's covered, that's covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now here's my last question. If that day were today, would you be counted as sheep? Saints in God? Or would you be counted as the sinner who rejected the love of truth, grasped, hold, enjoyed wickedness, to your eternal destruction. I would suggest that's worthy of your consideration because God's appointed a day. There's a day when it's all going to be shaken out for eternity. Let's pray.